0: Today uh, is my 12th wedding anniversary uh, and you can you, yay, uh, you can leave your flowers and chocolates uh, uh, at the door on the way out, um, uh, but uh, the reason I tell you that is because I want to tell you a story about something that happened maybe some 13 years ago. Uh, back in those days, or well, once upon a time, I feel like it's almost long enough ago I could start it like that. Uh, I uh, was a youth minister and uh, this girl called Elisa Walker was a youth leader and uh, we started to uh, hang out a little bit and uh, every term I would have this big laborious job uh, of uh, mailing out the programs for the term to the parents of uh, the kids who came to the youth group, which is like... I was thinking about this story as I was preparing this sermon, thinking, I can't even believe I used to mail stuff to people. Like, what the heck? Like, 13 years is a long time ago. But that's what we used to do. And every time I had to do one of these mail-outs, uh, I would invite uh, the uh, this young, lovely young lady called Elisa uh, to help me. Uh, and, you know, one mail-out led to another led to 12 years of marriage. Um, and... Uh, I, I tell you that to say, uh, beware uh, the minister who invites you to help with mail-outs. <laughs> but the real reason I want to start by uh, telling you that story is because what I actually want to do is get your brains into the space where the first uh, people who heard this story and read John's gospel, get, get it into the same kind of space, because uh, marriage would have been on their minds for two reasons. The first being, uh, John has just alluded to to, to marriage uh, right before uh, chapter 4. We've skipped over the last uh, part of chapter 3 but let me just read to you from uh, chapter 3 verses 29 to 30. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. And of course This is John the Baptist referring to uh, his position uh, as it relates to Jesus and his pointing to Jesus and him uh, being the one who prepares the way and then sort of steps off into the background, which we talked about back when we looked at the end of chapter 1 somewhat. That was John's ministry. He's he's used this analogy of uh, a wedding... Uh, and then right bef- uh, and then, as we get to this story, uh, we know that uh, just like uh, youth pastors and mailouts equals marriage, so does men and women at Wells equal romance. It perhaps sounds about as romantic as a mailout, doesn't it? But let me read to you a few stories from the Old Testament about what happens when men meet women at Wells. So Genesis chapter 24, I'll start at verse 42. Uh, This is the story of Isaac and Rebekah. When I came to the spring today, or the well, I said, Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this well. If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, drink and I'll draw water for your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, Please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him." Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Men, women, romance, wells. Or well, Jacob and Rachel in Genesis chapter 29. Jacob, uh, verse 1 and 2, Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of that well was large. And then we skip forward to verse 9. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. Wells and romance again. It doesn't stop there, though. Let me take you to Exodus chapter 2. Moses and Zipporah. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in uh, Midian, where he sat down by a well. Oh, here comes some romance. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And we re- the story goes on, and we read in verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Wells are romantic places for Israelites to hang out. A man and a woman meeting at a well is a cue for the ancient reader. Sort of like uh, when we uh, start watching a a movie, we, we have all these sorts of cues that go in our brain. If we watch a romantic comedy, it doesn't matter what the name is, It doesn't matter who the stars are, we just sort of know guy meets girl, girl and guy fall in love, crisis happens, everyone gets sad, guy comes back, Um, they get back together, everybody lives happily ever after. boring movie, repeat over and over again. I only watch them once a year on the, on, on the 30th of January. Uh, <laughs> um, and we have these cues in our minds about those sorts of romance stories, don't we? We know how they they go. There's a pattern, and there's this pattern with women at wells in the Bible too. And so we come to this story of Jesus and a woman at a well, and uh, what we uh, ought to be doing is trying to think like they would have been thinking. And it's likely that they thought of these stories as they see Jesus, this man of God, the the promised Messiah, the Word made flesh, and they see him come to this well, they're, they're, they're sort of wondering what's going to happen. And so as we consider the story, we also then ought to notice the ways in which it's different to the traditional well romance. And this tells us something in particular about who Jesus is and what he's offering. So let's dive in and take a look. We see in the opening verses that Jesus is on his way to Galilee, having left Jerusalem in verses 1 through to 3. We presume that it's no longer safe, perhaps, for Jesus to be in Jerusalem, given the Pharisees' Uh, have learnt about uh, all the people that he's baptising or that his disciples are baptising uh, and, the, and the following that he's gaining uh, as well as you know the stories we've read back in chapter 2 of uh, uh, him f- uh, flipping the tables and causing a bit of a scene in Jerusalem. Uh, things are getting dicey in Jerusalem for Jesus and so he's heading back to the regions, back to Galilee but of course uh, he needs to go through Samaria to get there, uh, because that's in between Jerusalem and Galilee, and on his way he has this rest at Jacob's well, where he meets the Samaritan woman. And just in case you're not overly familiar with Samaritans, I just want to give you a bit of an uh, a, a understanding of who they are. Uh, the Samaritans uh, are people who have descended from the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, they were exiled in 722 BC and uh, some went off to Babylon and some remained and some came back and eventually they intermarried with uh, the other peoples from that part of the world. Uh, they're part of the northern tribe which split off from the southern tribe and uh, was kind of even worse than the southern tribe was in terms of following the ways of God. Uh, they've sort of now intermarried and uh, the southern uh, Jewish people kind of have this contempt for them, they despise them, they have this half-bred Jewish religion with their half-bred Jewish people, people uh, and uh, the, this half-bred pagan religion all mixed together and it's detestable to uh, these uh, Jewish people from the southern kingdom who descend from the southern kingdom. And, of course, we know the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, which is a powerful story because it's about someone who is an enemy to the Jewish people, the Samaritan man, being kind and showing love to uh, a Jewish man uh, when his own people rejected him. And it's a, it's a lesson about loving our neighbours and our enemies uh, being our neighbours too. And so uh, it's culturally inappropriate, for Jesus to talk to this person. Jesus, as a Jew, as a full-blooded southern, uh, descendant of the sort of southern tribe, he shouldn't be uh, talking to her. He should have disdain for her. And she knows this as they begin their conversation. She says to him in verse 9, "'You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. "'How can you ask me for a drink?' And Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman responds in verses 11 and 12 uh, with sort of bewildered puzzlement but curiosity. You have nothing to draw with Jesus, and the well is deep, says the woman. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? It's it's sort of, how can this be? What are you talking about? But I'm kind of interested, because it sounds good. It sounds good to have this living water. And Again, I want to just encourage us, just as we did when we looked at the story of Nicodemus, to just pause and and not assume we know how this story ends and what Jesus is really talking about, but to spend some time cutting this Samaritan woman some slack. Just like Nicodemus, uh, you know, didn't have 2,000 years of Christian history about the phrase born again, and so rightly is confused, so too this woman, Uh, rightly takes Jesus on face value about when he's talking about living water, she's wondering where does the water come from? But as, the pro, as Jesus continues to talk with the Samaritan woman, we see that this living water is a, not, not, not actual water, but it's a, it's a spiritual water that, cu- that cures a deeper thirst, a spiritual thirst. And we start to get a window into this woman's spiritual thirst as the conversation progresses because she asks for the water in verse 15 and Jesus responds by saying this, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. What a strange thing for Jesus to say. Go call your husband and come back. But what Jesus is doing here is starting to reveal to her and to us her deeper needs, her deeper thirsts, her spiritual thirsts. For we learn in verses 17 and 18 that this is a woman who is sexually promiscuous. She's had five husbands and a man, and she's currently a man's mistress. And I think it's obvious that this woman is looking for something. She's looking for acceptance. She's looking for love. And she's trying to find it in man after man after man after man. She wants to know that she's accepted, that she's loved, that she's valuable, that she's worthwhile. She's drinking from the well of the love of, a, of individual uh, fallen human men. And now she's at this well, the place where men and women find love. She's met Jesus and he's promising to satisfy her. And I, I think about now, we sort of meant to start thinking are we about to see marriage? Is that what Jesus is talking about? He's the one who's going to satisfy her uh, by being uh, the the right man for her. But again, the story takes a twist, a turn from the the normal, well-romance genre of Old Testament literature and shows us that actually no... Jesus is going to do this in in, in a different way, in a deeper way, quenching her spiritual thirst. And in verses 19 through 26, the conversation moves in a different direction. The woman uh, knows Jesus is a prophet because of his supernatural knowledge about her life. And so uh, the conversation turns to worship. And one of the disagreements that Jews and Samaritan had was about how you should worship God. We see that in verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim we must worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, well, actually, uh, a time has come where this isn't going to matter. Instead, uh, worship needs to be done in spirit and truth. And, and this true worship is, is really the road into quenching this woman's thirst. What does Jesus mean when he says in verse uh, 23 that true and proper worship happens not in the right place but in spirit and truth? Well, again, the Old Testament links spirit and truth together uh, just as it linked water and spirit together when it talked about the cleansing work of the spirit. So let me read to you a couple of places where this happens. Nehemiah, verses, verse nine, uh, chapter nine, verse twenty: "You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manner from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst." Or Psalm thirty-three, verse six: "By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, the starry host by the Spirit or the breath of His mouth." Isaiah 59, 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Jesus, here, when he says, uh, worship will happen in spirit and truth, uh, he's saying worship will happen Through me. I'm the word of God made flesh. We know that from chapter one. I'm the way, the truth and the life. We know that later in chapter 14. I'm the one who sends the spirit, chapter 15. Uh, And as Don Carson reflects on this, uh, he's a scholar. He says this, the worshippers whom God seeks worship him out of the fullness of the spiritual life they enjoy in the spirit and on the basis of God's incarnate self-expression, Jesus Christ, through whom God's person Uh, and will are finally and ultimately disclosed in truth. That is, Jesus is saying, to worship God truly, to have your deepest needs met, you must worship God through the Messiah. The revelation of God's truth, the one whom the Spirit is sent, uh, whom by the Spirit is sent, and the one whom the Spirit points us to. And in verse 26, Jesus declares to the woman, I am the Messiah. Worship happens in response to me, in response to who I am, in response to what I have come to do. To worship God in spirit and truth uh, is to know God truly. It's to have the spirit of God come upon you to cleanse and renew you, as we saw last week in chapter 2. Uh, chapter three, sorry, and to awaken us to the truth of who uh, who Jesus is, and as we are awakened to that truth, the Spirit works to transform us to become more like Him, and we're propelled into a life of worship as God works on our hearts and our minds, changing us and transforming us and renewing us and helping us to put to death these empty wells in which we search for happiness and hope. Jesus says, you'll, you'll never be satisfied down there. Come instead to me. Come and worship me in spirit and truth. Build your life on me and you'll have living water that always satisfies. Well, the story continues with the disciples returning in verse 27, and they're a little shocked at the situation upon which they appear. I, I wonder if maybe they're thinking, um, has, the, has Jesus just met his wife? But the story again moves quickly as we notice a change in the woman having understood who Jesus is. The thing about this story is the, the woman has come to the well in the heat of the day there is no one else there except for jesus and her and scholars i think rightly argue that this is because she is a woman who is not well uh, not in good standing in her community you can't have five husbands and be someone else's uh, mistress in a small town in the middle of Samaria and and not cop a little bit of flack in the first century. This woman's here in the heat of the day because she carries around deep shame and scorn. She, She no doubt feels much rejection. But having met Jesus, who's told her that he will satisfy her deepest needs, that the Spirit of God will uh, cleanse her and renew her and change her and transform her and lead her into the true worship of God through the Messiah, through Jesus, whom she's just seen with her own eyes and who has just revealed himself to be the one who knows all truth. This woman who's, who's hiding and ashamed and scared, and has come to the world by herself. She goes straight back into town, and she speaks to the town. I have just seen the most amazing thing, verse 29. This man told me everything I ever did. And so the people respond, partly to the news, and probably partly to the messenger. Whoa, there's that sort of uh, a not so well respected woman and she's in town telling us we have to come and check this out and this guy sort of knows the deep truths about us, we better go see what's going on. And so they go in verse 30, they check to check out Jesus and in verse 39 we read that many of the Samaritans from the town believe in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me about everything I ever did. But it's not just the woman's testimony, is it? It's also Jesus teaching himself the truth. Their belief starts with this testimony from this woman, but their faith deepens as they learn more about who Jesus is. And so at the end of our story today, they say this to the woman. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world what a remarkable story this, this is the transformation of this woman from a sh- from sort of full of shame desperate for love to knowing she is loved and feeling uh, no shame anymore because of what jesus of who jesus is and what a transformation from the town that goes from heaping scorn and shame on this woman to uh, hearing her testimony about uh, who Jesus is, experiencing that for themselves and uh, understanding that Jesus is the Saviour of Word and also being transformed. And what a transformation of the category of uh, women, men and Wells love stories. where truly Our deepest needs are met by one man, the Son of God, the one who is the proper and true way to worship. This woman is a woman who longs to be loved, who longs to be accepted, and she meets Jesus in a terrible state, hiding and ashamed. She meets Jesus, and Jesus knows her deepest, darkest secrets. She is in no shape to be accepted by a holy God. And yet, in the middle of her messy life, she encounters Jesus and is met with love and acceptance. This woman doesn't even perhaps know what she's truly craving. But she knows she's broken. She's hiding in the middle of the day. And as she meets Jesus, and as he tells her the good news, I will quench your thirst, I will satisfy your soul. She accepts it, she receives it. She receives this living water which produces true worship of Jesus. And when that happens for her, she's transformed. She can't help but speak of what Jesus has done for her, of who Jesus is. And she encourages all who know her to come and check it out for themselves. The only right response when we meet Jesus, no matter how broken we are, no matter how messed up we are, is to worship him and to allow him to transform us, to satisfy us, to quench our thirst. Let me encourage you today to drink from the well that is Jesus and his living water. And having done that, let me encourage you to worship Jesus in spirit and truth because this will always satisfy. Jesus doesn't want you to be burdened by sin or shame, by your attempts to find love. He wants you to know true love in him, to drink from his well, the well of life that never runs dry. Look to Jesus, for in him is real and true life. Amen. (laughs)